Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. We had that one person write a review saying that we seem not to like each other, which, first of all, is not true. Luke and I are very close friends. Speak for yourself. (laughs) And yet we continually start these episodes immediately after we've just had an artistic argument over what the podcast should be. You know, some conflict of vision. This is happening almost every episode. we, We went to the we went to the studio and then had to come back because let's just say conditions there were not conducive to a good recording session. Right. So we're already in a bad mood. It wasn't Will's fault, to be fair, but... We're already in a bad mood. (laughs) And then, and then, you know, Lennon and McCartney start bickering with each other. Within a year, this podcast is going to be like the second side of Abbey Road. It's like, yeah, it's brilliant, but it's just kind of like, we're just doing our own things, you know? (laughs) It's just bits of songs that are unfinished, stapled together. So, you know, you'll hear... Oh, it'd be a shame if that happened in this podcast, wouldn't (laughs) it? Yeah. You'll just hear like, you know, uh, five minutes of me uh, ranting about, I don't know, like whatever. It'd, it'd be almost as if there was like the film guy and the politics guy. Yeah, right. It'll be like, I'll, well, I'll, you'll, you'll hear me just, just going full, like, I'll be like, ah, yeah, Democrats. Uh, oh, and then Amar Bergman. And then you'll be like, ah, so uh, I was thinking about Bruce Lee impersonators. Anyway, uh, there was a coup attempt in Russia, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I didn't follow it that closely. But what I did see was the meta discourse around it, which was I saw, I saw two kinds of things. One of them was, ooh, I bet all you people talking about Ukrainian Nazis sure feel silly now. I mean, I'm not sure why they would, but that was a take that I saw. Well, because presumably because the paramilitary unit, uh, the Wagner group, all pronunciation, I've heard it, Wagner, Wagner, no idea how it's supposed to be pronounced. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of neo-Nazis in this kind of Russian uh, Blackwater group led by the former hot dog vendor, uh, Prigozhin, that attempted the coup. And the other thing I heard was, why isn't CNN covering this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did see that discourse for a few hours. And I mean, with that, I kind of did just think, well, like, truly, I mean, that was in the first hours where it's like, truly nobody has any idea what's going on here so it's like i don't know what i mean and it's a very difficult situation to cover because like who's on the ground that's like a you know as it were a verified source insofar as such a thing can exist these days so you have a bunch of shit getting posted to telegram channels and then you have you know whatever's coming out of like the russian interior ministry you got basically dueling propaganda but uh yeah we just so happened to uh decide to do a a a movie that uh let's just say had some russian uh russian themes in it for this week's episode. And then, uh, yeah, it turned out this happened. I don't know, it's funny. I was also kind of uh, noticing the meta discourse, but uh, the thing I noticed was actually a bunch of libs uh, wetting their pants at the idea of just anything that, you know, is potentially destabilizing in Russia right now is good. So we're not going to sort of, yeah, bother to look at who this Wagner group is, you know. Like, I'm just going to go on a limb and say that, like, any kind of civil uh, strife or disorder between competing factions of, you know, a nuclear armed state is literally never a good thing. Uh, I did think it was very funny that in the case of this coup, I mean, you know, it it is genuinely interesting, you know, the meta discourse aside that this paramilitary group was able to, uh, you know, this didn't seem like it could possibly be real at first. But when there was videos, you know, being tweeted and stuff of like, oh, yeah, they've occupied Russian Southern Military Command in Rostov, which is like where a lot of the uh, invasion of Ukraine has been directed from. These guys have left their posts in Ukraine. I mean, they, they weren't on the front lines. So, you know, the the Russian line doesn't seem to have been affected by this. But then when there was like this kind of, uh, you know, rumor going around, oh, yeah, they're marching on Moscow. I was like, well, that's just I mean, there's no there's no there's no way like, oh, yeah, they're claiming to 
have shot down a helicopter. But no, it really does seem like they got within about 200 kilometers of Moscow without actually any kind of plan for what they were going to do or capability of actually, you know, taking the city or confronting the resistance that they obviously would have. And so, uh, you know, they just kind of like struck a deal. And I mean, it is interesting that, you know, yeah, the, the rhetoric that Putin gave in his statement that morning, which is, you know, these people are traitors, they're stabbing uh, the Russian people during the back, they're all criminals, whatever. And then by the evening, it was like, uh, yeah, uh, all's forgiven. Uh, they're going to go back to their posts. And uh, yeah, this guy is going to, I don't know, go live in a McMansion in Belarus or something. So uh, a genuinely significant event in global affairs. Uh, hard to know what to make of it yet. But, you know, I can promise that in the future, I'm sure Michael and us will be your one stop shop for all, you know, uh, geopolitical developments in Russia and uh, come to us for all things Russia and Prigozhin. Hey, and if you want to come to us for other things, patreon.com slash Michael and us. Don't know if you've heard about it. Five Yankee dollars a month, extra episode every week. Last week, we talked about The Flash. <laughs> yeah, that, that one has kind of stuck with us in a way that's a little bit ugly. Aye, aye, aye. Other recent episodes include Air Force One, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, Ingmar Bergman's Persona, plus a vast back catalog that includes everything from Crumb to, to Dinesh D'Souza to The Last Jedi. Yeah, you know, we've had the Patreon going for a few years now, and I suppose when you think about it, its value has only increased because when we started it, I mean, we must have only had 150 episodes or something, and now there's Man, 400. penny stocks it was at the time, <laughs> and now the people who joined early are, they're billionaires. And folks, whether you subscribe or not, uh, please just do your, your humble co-host a favor. Do give us a rating on the podcast app of your choice. Leave a review. I know many of you have already, and, and thank you. You're one of the soldiers. Yeah, we always appreciate it. And just to be clear, it's not primarily so that uh, Will and I feel better about ourselves. Apparently, it helps with the algorithms and stuff, and so, so more people uh, enjoy the show. As always, we're grateful to be able to partner with Jacobin Magazine. If you're coming to this podcast from elsewhere, don't miss other shows on the Jacobin Radio Network. Great shows like The Dig, Long Reads, and Behind the News. Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. And I'm glad you brought up The Flash because, I mean, obviously we went to see that last week and it's like, I guess it's like lingered with me. There's still a sulfuric taste in my mouth, I have to say. I would go so far as to say not to overreact to like a pretty bad movie, but like it, it almost like shook me that this is where our culture is at. I think this is worth, uh, you know, spending a little time on this anyway, because folks, you know, Will and I, when we talk during the week, you know, we're usually not really talking about podcast business or like if we are, it's sort of planning ahead. Head, you know, it's like, what should we talk about next? It's very rare. I mean, except when we watch a good movie and, you know, it's kind of stayed with us and it's like, oh, that Kurosawa guy, certainly he was he was pretty good at his craft. Like, unless it's that kind of thing, you know, it's very rare for Will to message me a day, two days, three days, all of which happened in this case after we've just seen something bad to talk about how upset he is. And that happened this week. Because typically the content conveyor belt is such that like... Well, you, if it's you, bad, you want to put it behind you. You do the episode, yeah. you put out the episode, you're on to the next thing. Uh -huh. But like, there's so much about The Flash... It's funny, we were talking about Oppenheimer, the new Christopher Nolan movie, and we were both talking about how we kind of want to see it. Yeah. And like, 
I'm not a Christopher Nolan fan. No, he's convoluted. He has the emotional range of a child. But hey, like at least his films have a fucking pulse and a beating heart. I look back on The Dark Knight and it's a movie with a beginning, a middle and an end. It, it sort of has an internal coherence. It plays by its own rules. And the only thing it's setting up at the end is possibly the third movie. It's right. not one link in a huge chain of... Oh, yeah, it's not vertically and horizontally in a, integrated. One stitch yeah. in a giant quilt of, I don't know, whatever metaphor it is. IP. Of IP that <laughs> yeah. this is going to feed to the next movie and that movie. And like in The Flash, so just on a storytelling level, the fact that the Michael Keaton Batman, when you meet him, he's like, oh, I'm done with crime fighting. I'll never fight crime again again you know never again you guys are on your own and then all ezra miller has to do this guy who's been in seclusion has not been batman for 10 years at least and and i mean something about that scene that's really funny too is another detail is he's like oh yeah gotham's got along fine without me there's no crime or whatever it's like nuts thing to just drop that's just dropped in it's like the entire like moral cosmology of batman is that unless you have the dark knight there's chaos and disorder which frankly there's like a, a certain amount of that anyway even with batman but it's like so what the fuck is the joker been doing the the joker is just like that shitty scene in suicide squad where like harley quinn imagines the future and she actually imagines herself like really domesticated and she and jared leto at home and they're just taking care of the children it's like has the joker just become like a suburbanite well you know you think about the tim burton batman movies that he's from that have this intense gothic ambiance to them stylized 1930s meets the 1980s weird aesthetic and then this movie is that what 10 years 20 years after those movies and now it just looks like like there's a pret a manger on the corner it's just, it's just like, long island yeah, yeah. <laughs> like what happened what happened keaton batman who is like the quintessential like dark superhero in a gothic world we spend the whole movie with him just out in the open air you know it's bright he, he looks fucking insane you know there's no consideration of the aesthetic that he was once tied to but that's not even that doesn't that's not even the biggest problem it's like this guy who hasn't been a crime fighter in 10 to 20 years has just apparently kept his bat plane serviced. <laughs> All the equipment in the bat cave is running fine. And he's like, yeah, let's let's just do a transatlantic flight to Russia right now. Years. Yeah, and I'm sorry, are we to believe that the two Ezras who, you know, we catch in the movie, there's like, I don't know, three or four minutes of them just you know, banting soily in the back. So first of all, is there is there a washroom on the bad plane? Oh yeah. But like, but also what? They're just this whole this whole time for like ten hours as they're you know flying to Siberia or whatever, probably longer than ten hours. What? We're just supposed to believe the two Ezras are being like, oh well, uh, yeah. So are you gonna talk to him? Oh no, my plan was for you to talk to him. Well, actually, that would kind of fall into being uh your thing. Like you know that what they did that for fifteen hours. Does Batman have to refuel? Can a plane of that size make it across the Atlantic? Okay, that what I'm willing to grant because it's really? like well I don't know it's like whatever it's the bad flame oh, it's like uh, itchy hits scratch his rib twice and strikes two different notes okay okay <laughs> if you think this is nitpicking what about the end of, uh, what, what really bothered me was at the end of the movie where you spent okay the whole second half of the movie is about Supergirl basically it's uh, building up Supergirl uh, Supergirl died on the way home to her home planet yeah yeah she's like forget about Superman we got Supergirl this is Supergirl begins and then at the end of the movie with this joke ending that's apparently like the third or fourth one they've shot yeah. for the movie it's just like oh yeah supergirl she was wiped out of history you'll never see her again she had one mission and she fucking flopped it 
Well, and also like normally the 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 normal dumb reason why you'd have like you know Supergirl who's not even introduced until like what like halfway through Act Two, two or something. Of the way in yeah, the yeah. Like normally that you put something like that in, and yeah, it's dumb and it makes these movies convoluted. But the idea is like, okay, you're setting up a new IP stream because there's going to be a whole bunch of Supergirl movies. And in this, they're like, nope, nope, Supergirl's gone. Well, as we explained on the last episode, it was reported that they shot three different endings, the first two of which had various configurations of actors, including Sasha Cal, <laughs> Michael Keaton, Henry Cavill, Gal Gadot. They were in various configurations depending on whichever the current regime thought was going to be in the next 10 movies. <laughs> Who they are going to build it around. I love it. Sorry, it's just I love Gal Gadot's appearance in the movie, which is literally like 30 seconds long with her just like extremely stilted acting. And then she's like, I have to go now. My planet needs me. And by the way, that's, she's never appears that's the again. last you'll ever see of her because <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. now been written out of the universe. Has she? Well, yeah, like they're <laughs> rebooting the whole thing. And in fact, canonically, her universe doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Canonically. It's, you know what it reminds me of is like, by the way, I'm sorry, we, we do have a movie to talk yeah, about and we'll yeah, get yeah. to it, but you can tell this movie has like disturbed something within each of us, like quite profound. And we need to we need to we need to stay with a little bit just to to purge this demon. There, a specter is haunting the Michael and Us podcast, the specter of the flash, and it needs to be exercised. But you know what it reminds me of is like the end of Rogue One, where they have to explain, you know, another movie that didn't drive me as insane in quite the way that Rise of Skywalker did, but I also didn't think it was very good. I'm very much, you know, I know there's a camp of people that's like, oh, that's actually like the, 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 the best of the new Star Wars films. I strongly disagree. There is no best of the new Star Wars films. But that movie, you know, which, you know, like it's supposed to end like hours before the beginning of A New Hope. And yet there's so many things in it that are like not at all consistent or whatever, including the fact that like you've never heard about any of these characters before. And how does the film deal with that? Oh, yeah, there's like a giant blast or whatever on the planet with the Death Star plans. And so, yeah, all the characters are are wiped out, which is why you never heard about them. So the movie like builds into itself the idea that, yeah, no, we're wiping the slate clean because actually this is just a giant experiment in fucking IP and you pigs are going to eat up this slop as long as we're feeding it to you. I'll tell you what I think actually really bothers me about the ending of The Flash is that the current ending, and folks, let's spoil the end of The Flash again. You see Barry Allen, The Flash, thinks he's righted the universe. You know, he thinks he's gone back and he's fixed it so that the timeline is as it should be. Now, in the original endings they filmed, he found out that, oh, it wasn't quite that. He didn't quite write it. In his current reality that he's in, Supergirl's there, Bat Keaton is there. You know, all these figures from like the other timeline that he created are now in the current reality. And presumably they're going to be his friends going forward in the new adventures. The movie has spent the whole second half introducing you to Supergirl and Bat Keaton as the exciting new characters in this universe. And narratively, emotionally, that's the correct ending to the film. But then the new regime at Warner Brothers comes in and says, actually, we don't want those characters anymore. We don't want anything from the past regime. We don't want to even promise that these characters are coming back. So we're going to end it with the joke ending that he's that all those characters that you spent the whole movie growing to know and love, they're dead now. Yeah, it's like the, the party line has changed. They're and so dead. We have to, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and like, let's say, let's say they had those characters at the end of the movie and they decided not to go forward with them. Well, there are a million movies like that. That's fine. Uh, it's okay for things to end, I think, which is 
was one of our bigger takeaways like, in watching that movie. If this were just a normal movie, the correct ending would be for those characters to survive in some form because uh-huh. that's the most emotionally satisfying ending. <laughs> it, it's just logical. <laughs> like, But the brass at Warner Brothers decided instead that much more important than an emotionally, narratively satisfying ending to the movie was an ending that did not promise anything for the future of the franchise. And in so doing, they created an ending that completely undermined, completely undercut everything that came before. Like they made an ending that deliberately sabotaged the movie you're watching because they felt that the previous ending did not fit with company policy in some way. (laughs) I think that bothers me. That's fucked up. That's weird. It it is interesting. Like I'm interested to probe this a little more. Like why? Like, because, you know, I was bothered by this movie, but I think you were like really quite viscerally like something about this movie, like a Rubicon was crossed with this movie. Like I've never seen you react even to like bad super. Superhero movies like quite like this. So I'm interested in like, why is it do you think that this bothered you so much when at the end of the day, the stakes are just like another superhero monstrosity? Like, it's interesting that the basic sort of like flaws in The Flash as a film actually bother you, even though the underlying product is still just, you know, The Flash. Two things, as we see in so many of these other IP movies like Space Jam A New Legacy, it's the flattening of all this corporate property into one paste. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's Christopher Reeve. It's the bowl of spaghetti yeah, in the movie. Christopher Reeve, like, grotesquely resurrected as CGI. Michael Keaton's Batman, who's from and, this. And Nicolas Cage in a, from a Superman that doesn't even exist. Yeah, like, it's not enough for Michael Keaton's Batman to be in his time of his context in a whole different artist statement about, I mean, maybe those are great words to apply to a superhero movie but you look at those Burton Batman movies and like they are distinctive and they're the product of an artist and then it's like no that doesn't matter he's just part of the pace now and and we're gonna we're gonna have him in a movie in a way that doesn't kind of respect what those movies were trying to do it's saying all that matters is that we can use him as a prop in the call to the shareholders right now So that bothers me. But then also the fact that there's not even any pretense in this movie that the movie is anything more than just like a a business calculation. A decision was made at some point in post-production that this movie is a non-starter. This movie is no longer useful to us and therefore we're not we're not even going to let this movie work on its own terms. And then if the movie were actually about that, if the movie were sort of like Dada's gesture about itself, I would respect it. But it's not. It's like, here's this fucking slop that doesn't even work on its own terms. I suppose something else that occurs to me as you're speaking is, I mean, another thing about a movie like The Flash is like, you don't have to go into that movie liking, you know, being even remotely invested in like, like, you know, the, I, the movie had no stakes for you, for you or I as, you know, The Flash or as a superhero movie. Like we're not, it's not uh, kind of perturbing because it's like, oh, look what, the, you know, we're not, we're not like Marlon Brando and The Godfather being like, look how they massacred my boy. You know, it's not like that. It's a canary in the coal mine for, yeah. for, for other stuff because the kind of regime that is in place at Warner Brothers now, the logic that it's applying to these mass entertainment products is the same logic that it is trying to apply and, and seeks to apply to the whole of culture and is with some success doing that already. I mean, you were sending me these like anguished texts about The Flash uh, (laughs) as you were also telling me about like, oh yeah, like Scorsese and Paul Thomas Anderson and I can't remember which other. Uh, Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg had 
had to do like an emergency Congress with David Zaslav to stop him doing like austerity to Turner classic movies. Right. They're literally stripping the culture and selling it for parts. I saw that Warner Brothers now is uh, they're, they're putting up $500 million, like half of their music holdings, which include like much of Prince's discography right. and stuff. And it's like, what does that matter to me? Not a lot. Like whoever owns Prince, like all have access to it. So it, it bothers me less than what's happening to Turner classic movies, but it's representative of the culture there where none of this means anything. That's right. None of this is important. All that matters to our corporate identity is the bottom line. It's very like knowing the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah. And I mean, this speaks also to, I think, why you were so disturbed. And I feel like you're articulating why I was so disturbed as well by just like the narrative problems uh, with The Flash, like the fact that the basic mechanics of movie making are not there, like narrative structure and things like that, because it all bespeaks a kind of mass entertainment culture where the most basic foundations are collapsing because everything is being subordinated to the dictates of exchange value such that these movies, you know, as we've said again and again on this podcast, and you know, taking a microscope to various, you know, monstrosities like The Flash or Space Jam, A New Legacy or Ready Player One. These are movies where the boundary between kind of entertainment and the commodity form has completely collapsed. Simpsons and Plus Aversary is another good example of that. One thing I felt the need to point out in my essay that came shortly after our episode for Jacobin on that was that like, okay, people might say, oh, you look at The Simpsons today and look, oh, it's so, you know, they're monetizing with all this IP. Well, have you ever, you know, I, I knew that there would be some kind of too clever by half response to the piece. It's like, yeah, Simpsons in the 90s, they were doing Butterfingers commercials. What are you talking about? But there is such a clear distinction between, okay, you have this universe that people like, it's called The Simpsons, and then you attach a franchise model to that universe. That is very different than having the whole universe be built out of the franchise model, if that makes sense. Or now, any barrier that once separated the thing itself from its existence, its status as IP, as a commodity, has completely collapsed. So now, like a movie like The Flash can't function on a basic narrative level because narrative is not the point. Everything about it is just literal fucking parasitic rent-seeking. And the hilarious thing about all of this is, you know, as, as, as we saw in The Flash with like Michael Keaton's bowl of pasta where he puts the tomato sauce in. He's like, yeah, this is the movie. <laughs> this yeah. is the movie you're watching. It's literal slop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like he fucking sloshes the tomato sauce on it. You know, it, you know, with stuff like that or with Space Jam and New Legacy, the, the whole kind of tragically hilarious byproduct of all this is that all this bullshit actually kind of manages to radiate this like quasi-ironic sense of like self-awareness. Or ironic's not the right word. Burlesque is probably a better word. Like these movies are no longer even really like bothering to make a case for themselves anymore. They're not even trying to like shield you from the ugliness. It's it's like, oh no, look, yeah, the parent company is literally like a character in the movie. What the what are you gonna do about it. Speaking of how the culture is like falling apart under all this logic, I'm sure you've seen some of the discussion and reporting that's been going on about the conditions and like the visual effects firms that are making these movies. <laughs> right, right. The CGI is bad because they're doing neoliberalism to the studios and stuff. They're working people to the bone. They're creating CGI sweatshops. There, there are a limited number of companies that do the CGI for these movies. And there are also a limited number of superheroes 
superhero movies. And these companies are vying hard for these contracts. And most of these companies are non-union, obviously. And the studios say, okay, we, we're hiring you to do 200 special effects shots in these movies. And the special effects shots, like a shot is just a shot. It doesn't matter how complex the shot is. So right, It's a unit. That's it's a right. single unit of measurement. So there's one <laughs> shot that might only be, get rid of that billboard in the background, replace it with Sky. But then there's another shot that might be General Zod is fighting Batman and Wonder Woman and Superman and 10 other characters in one scene and the camera's swirling and, and it's 30 seconds long. That's one shot. And you have X amount of time to do it because this is the release date. And if you don't fucking do it, you're never getting a contract ever again. And the special effects look bad and they look worse than they did 15 years ago. 15 years ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as this one viral TikTok thing I was watching pointed out, the reason that the new Avatar movie looked so good is because James Cameron spent 15 years making it. Spent that long doing these effects and perfecting this technology to get to this point. But if these movies are just making an automatic $120 million opening weekend every single time, it doesn't fucking matter. You can just, it doesn't matter how bad they look. Now, I guess the good news is that The Flash was a disaster. <laughs> and maybe we can keep this up, guys. Yeah, I mean, seriously, all this shit, like these these guys that are behind this stuff, these like fucking suits that are liquidating, you know, these giant conglomerates that were already big, soulless corporate conglomerates, now they're just like being hollowed out even further and they're becoming these like demonic sort of undead uh, entities all that shit all the guys behind crypto and nfts and all this bullshit a lot of you know the ai guys all these people what they think they're doing is this is dynamism we're actually making things more efficient and stuff and what all of this actually is is literally like brezhnev era ussr these guys are modern equivalents of like the dumbest like most boneheaded soviet bureaucrats from the brezhnev era being like oh yeah no we're like one just one more five-year plan all right one more five-year plan and we're gonna have fully automated luxury communism. Unbelievable. Okay, you mentioned James Cameron. So there's actually one other thing I want to talk about before we get to the movie. I'm sure, I mean, we would be remiss. People would ask questions like, why haven't you talked about the submarine? So I don't know if you have you been following that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, this is a few days old at this point, but I think people do deserve a take on it. Uh, my take on the, uh, if you're listening to this 20 years in the future and have no idea what we're talking about, there was a sketchy submarine company that advertised that they would take, you know, for $200,000, they'd take you down to the bottom of the ocean to see the ruins of the Titanic. And the world was kept in suspense last week because the submarine failed. Well, it disappeared, so no one knew what had happened. And for several days, it was thought that the oxygen was running out. Maybe they were suffocating, covered in shit and piss, and just having a horrible time at the bottom of the ocean. Um, It turns out that I think it had a very quick implosion. That's a consensus now. And I'm sure, you know, people will be up on uh, most people listening now. If, you know, if you're not listening to this, if you're not finding this after the apocalypse like on like a usb key like that's washed up to shore in a bottle uh, i assume you're you're up on the details but i for some reason i don't know i found this story pretty interesting you know madeline and i were watching a bunch of clips of it and it's so funny because so many of the clips like i don't know, just kind of like just dumb news clips giving you really generic stuff and then we watched this one of james cameron who like right away it struck you okay the most articulate person on all this knows way more about submarines than anyone else like i never really well, looked he, into he, his submarine shit said, he said words to the effect of, oh, yeah, they were notorious in the submergence community. Yes. Like, he he explained that they made the submarines, or I guess it's technically submersible. I'm not sure what the distinction is. He knows they, the distinction. They, he knows it. They made it out of carbon fiber, which apparently has never been done. And it didn't have like all these like safety features and redundancies 
that are just part and parcel of this kind of craft didn't have any of those. So it was a literal libertarian submarine. Now, I saw him, he was out in the press, I think, rightly criticizing the way the media covered it, being like, look, as soon as the thing disappeared, like, it was gone. And instead, the media made this big circus out of it. Again, because the whole, everything just exists now to wring profit out of something. That's what this is. It's just the attention economy. So all this bullshit, like, you know, CNN having a literal counter that's like, this is how many minutes of oxygen uh, they I have thought, left. I thought that was sick. Absolutely I obscene. But, you know, I think the real reason people have found this so compelling is not the sort of make-believe drama of it. You know, all that's very contrived. But because, you know, the Titanic, you know, the why you know, the Titanic has fascinated people for such a long time because it is kind of this er case, this er modern case of like a collision between rich people and, you know, technological hubris. So it's like, oh, the Titanic can't sink, right? Uh, you know, it's the it's the it's indestructible, it's the best ship ever built. And, you know, the Titanic itself, you know, is famously depicted in Cameron's movie, you know, was kind of this, like, its design had, like, class hierarchy built into it. And, you know, if you were on the upper decks and you paid for a first-class ticket, you were more likely to survive. And, you know, what is this fucking submarine? I mean, you know, Maddie was pointing out that, you know, it really seems like the kind of wealthy passenger that would get on something like this and, you know, not do the research, which, like, apparently if you do that, there's companies that can do this more or less safely and have never had an accident. But, you know, when you get uh, sufficiently rich, you can just think, well, my, I, you know, if I've paid a quarter million dollars for this, nothing, nothing bad's going to happen to me. And I kind of think that's why people found it so compelling. And of course, there's been this whole meta discourse about like, oh, uh, people are celebrating that these rich people died. Isn't that disgraceful? And it's like all of that stuff is abstract. I mean, I think what I think people are primarily engaging with this on the level of symbolism. And the reason why it resonates symbolically is because the submarine and, you know, sorry, I'm going to do a Frank Rich writing about Balloon Boy with this. But I mean, the submarine is our culture now. It's like the James Cameron submarine, that's in the past. Like that's how <laughs> studios used to work. You know, the Flash and every movie now and the entire culture is now just a submarine going down to see the Titanic, patronized by rich people for no reason in particular, except their own hubris and excess and built out of the shittiest material possible. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I played for five minutes. I still see falling blocks in my dreams. It's poetry, art and math, all working in magical synchronicity. It's, it's the perfect game. Tetris? Tetris. 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 I don't get it. It's a combination of tetra, Greek for four, and tennis. Tennis. The Russian inventor, he likes tennis. Hazel. Yeah. This game isn't just addictive, it stays with you. Our movie on this episode continues, well, it converges a couple of different trends we've been talking about on the podcast lately. It is another movie about the boardroom <laughs> wheelings and dealings that created a beloved corporate property. These movies that are sort of the sons and daughters of the social network. We talked about the recent Ben Affleck joint Air, the better Blackberry, and now we're talking about Tetris which just came out this year. It is about the efforts to license the video game Tetris from a game designer in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. The incredible true story. 
So uh, this movie, you know... This and this did nothing for my mood, this movie. The dark mood yeah. I was feeling after The Flash. I do not feel any more confident about I, the culture. I, I have actually... So I don't feel good either, but I have to say, I have never felt more confident in our ability to like settle on the right thing to talk about on an episode. Because this was a case where it's like, we're feeling shitty. We're feeling shitty about the culture. We watched a rancid movie in the form of The Flash. Everything is IP. Before that, we watched a kind of not very interesting you know reactionary movie that had to do with Russia and it's like this movie brings it all together you know this is like sometimes you just got to chase the dragon so that's what we're doing here it's interesting the sorts of bad movies that Luke really likes I think we all have our own pleasure spot I didn't like this movie I liked I I, like talking about it on the podcast all the pain we just went through is just is about this what I'm saying is I know you didn't like it no gain I know you didn't like it but like whenever I suggest like a bad like conservative stand-up comedy comedy movie whenever I'm like oh there's a new Bill Maher special you're like oh anything but that but if it's like a bit of anti-Soviet kitsch, like uh-huh. a kind of like American exceptionalist, like no, capitalist drama, you're pumping your fist when you're watching it. Like, this more, is so funny. That's more, you know why that's more interesting? Because it at least purports to have real ideological stakes. Yeah. Whereas the Bill Maher thing is, oh, what, I'm going to watch like the 15th fucking one of these where some like <laughs> aging comedian is like, oh, you can't go to a campus these days without people getting offended. But look, don't point the finger at me, bucko, because you were the one, <laughs> you were the one I said... We were going to do Kurosawa this week. That was my idea. And you're like, the Tetris movie seems like a good bet. Listen, you call me a crypto fascist one more time and I'll sock you in the goddamn jaw and you'll stay plastered. So look, uh, this movie is an IP movie. Obviously, it's about Tetris. But you know, because we are becoming scholars of this sort of movie, I think it needs to be noted that this film belongs to uh, an important subgenre of IP movie that we've talked about before, which is, you know, the capitalism IP movie. Think of uh, The Founder, the movie where Michael Keaton plays, you know, the founder of McDonald's, uh, you know, who, who revolutionizes burger production. Uh, Air, of course, we talked about recently. Because not every IP movie is directly about you know, the, the dynamism of the capitalist system. Those movies I just mentioned and this movie are. And something that Will and I have, have observed that is kind of curious and interesting about this sort of movie is that the stakes are often actually very low. So the thing that is kind of being used, the, the device or the consumer product or the industrial process or whatever is often like the lowest kind of tier thing imaginable. So it's like, if we didn't have the best of the capitalist system, if we didn't have, you know, the, the dynamic disruptive elements, you would never have had the idea of like a basketball shoe that's like built around a particular athlete or Tetris. Well, the pitch (laughs) pitch for this movie is, isn't it crazy that Tetris brought down the USSR? (laughs) That's kind of the pitch. But but the problem is the movie has reverence for Tetris. Like yeah. one of the this gr- movie is so horny for Tetris. One of the great thing, one of the great things about the social network is that Sorkin and Fincher didn't particularly care about Facebook and didn't ask you to either. In fact, I think they regarded Facebook as kind of sick. Or in the recent BlackBerry movie, there's no real reverence for BlackBerry, the the product, and nor is there any reverence for the characters. And in BlackBerry, the thing that actually destroys the product are these like inane attempts to, you know, compete and stuff like that. That's what ruins the craftsmanship. So there's, you know, there's a critical element there as well. You watch this movie and you can see what they're trying to do. It's supposed to be sort of light and funny, but also a bit of a thriller. All of the convolutions of the plot, which get quite difficult to follow, actually, 
intentionally so. You can imagine if someone like, I don't know, the Coen brothers had taken this story, they wouldn't have lost sight of the sort of fundamental absurdity of it all. And that would have undergirded it and made it work. But for most of this movie, I'm just watching this being like, why am I supposed to care about Tetris again? This movie right from the outset represents Tetris as like the dialectic of history being realized. Like there's a line early on where, you know, the main character is, you know, Hank, whatever he is, is explaining to someone what Tetris is. And he's like, it's art and math coming together, working in perfect harmony. Tetris, it's a combination of the Greek word for four. And I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. I like to play it on my phone when I'm on the subway sometimes (laughs) it kind of keeps me occupied if i don't have a book (laughs) but i mean look there's there's basically a lot to talk about here and also nothing to talk about i don't think will and i have been as bored i was less bored watching the flash honestly oh my god in all seriousness yeah maybe maybe because the thing about this movie is the stakes are so low but also like the plot is so labyrinthine like they made this whole movie is made out of act two everything is part of this convoluted labyrinthine plot where it's like you know that there's no suspense because you know like at the end oh they're gonna smuggle tetris out of the ussr but it has to serve you all these inane details about like oh well there were competing interests in the west and all these different conglomerates behind them all these chains of entrepreneurs entrepreneurship and franchising that lay behind of each of these things all these entangling alliances and arrangements and it, like honestly it is, I was trying very difficult to follow and it's just it's very hard to it doesn't pull you in because you just don't care about any of it well what's important to know is this is a movie made by liberals so it's a pro-capitalist movie that also makes distinctions between different kinds of capitalism. <laughs> there are two factions in the Western world competing for Tetris. One of them is led by our hero, Hank Rogers, played by Taron Edgerton, who's a video game entrepreneur who at this consumer electronics show discovers Tetris, which was created by a computer program in the Soviet Union, Alexander, played by Nikita Yefremov. You know, he's going to Nintendo in Japan saying this is the best game ever. Let's make a part But the bad capitalists are represented by Hank's competitor, Robert Maxwell, played by Roger Allen. That is the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, Robert Maxwell. Yeah, which, by the way, being the father of Ghislaine Maxwell is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the shit that guy got up to. But you're absolutely right. Like the function of Robert Maxwell in this movie is to be like, this is what all these movies do. It's it's the move that libertarians do where everything that's bad about capitalism, which is actually just all integral to capitalism, like, oh, no, no, that's not the free market. That's not capitalism. That's crony capitalism. So, you know, in actuality, Robert Maxwell was a guy that had all these business dealings in the Eastern Bloc. He was very friendly with the dictator of Romania, Nikolai Ceausescu. There was like a famous interview that Robert Maxwell like opened with his opener to Ceausescu was like, why, why do people love you so much or something like that? And, you know, he was rumored to be a spy and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, his function in this movie is to be like, yeah, he's, he's capitalism, but he's not really capitalism. You know why the main character is capitalism? He, so he's Matt Damon in this movie because he's a fan. He just loves Tetris. Like, literally five minutes into this movie, when he was telling somebody about how good Tetris is, I just quoted Air, because it's literally the same scene, where Matt Damon is sitting across from Michael Jordan's mother, and he's like, I'm here because I believe in your son. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, I don't want to get into the machinations of the plot. Those are the two factions. They're working their way through a crumbling Soviet empire. And importantly, all of it is made up. There's a quote from the screenwriters movie where they were like, yeah, I mean, it's a Hollywood movie. So, you know, his, it's not about history. Wait, Luke, so it- Luke, you're telling me that even the car chase is made up? <laughs> yeah, the, just, the, the race to the airport? They- They watched Argo before they made this because it has the same race to the airport at the end. This movie, I mean, it is so boring, but it is also, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I kind of like, I mean, didn't like it, but one of the reasons I enjoyed watching it in a perverse sort of way is it is so fanatical and it's like anti-communism. Oh my God. I I actually didn't think it was possible to make a movie like this anymore. It's hard to believe that it's even like adults made this. Like it's camp. It's on the level of Rocky IV. it's, It's insane. And that at least had that it came out in the 19th. 80s is an excuse so like i did learn a lot about the ussr i mean did you There's know no son <laughs> yeah yeah the, the sun was nationalized by the bolsheviks and it's like ostensibly it's the you know property of the people but of course the bureaucrats at the top of the state they hoard it all for themselves well yeah because <laughs> true true democracy true social democracy is that none of us get sunlight <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah. uh and you know the movie visually cinematographically its perspective on soviet architecture is basically tom wolf's like look <laughs> yeah. at all these these yeah. ugly slabs of affordable housing. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's not as if like central Moscow, like parts of it would have looked just palatial. And, well, as, like, as you, you pointed know, out, like... even when they're driving up to like one of the good looking historic buildings, they're like, well, they have to film it with a gray tint so it looks bad. It's insane. They film it in such a way that it like, yeah, it's not even allowed to look beautiful. There must be, there's a state provision that says they're not allowed to put pictures up unless they're of like Lenin or something. Oh my God. <laughs> there's, e- there's even a scene where the, the programmer who came up with Tetris is talking about like the weather or something in Russia and he's like oh it's it's like our literature very cold and it's like Oh, sorry. Yeah, Dost- Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah, is you cold? know, Tolstoy, yeah. Chekhov, all that famously cold Russian literature. You know that Russian music that's famously devoid of emotion, <laughs> Tchaikovsky? <laughs> We're getting ahead of ourselves, but at the at the last scene of the movie, or or sorry, the climactic scene where they're racing to the airport and Hank gives Alexei a hug, and Alexei says, and it's not even supposed to be funny, Alexei says, No, there is no time for these American emotions. <laughs> Seriously. American emotion. It is insane. There is a scene where they go to Do some... they think it's actually 1984? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's so it's so funny how like I mean, because what it, what this movie is, is it's like Reagan era anti-communism in 2023 and Reagan era anti-communism was already this astral projection of earlier anti like Reaganite anti-communism was already in important ways a kind of reactionary like nostalgia for earlier forms of anti-communism and its idea of what the Soviet Union was like in many ways like bore no resemblance to like what the Soviet Union actually was by the 1980s so like when this movie represents like there's this hilarious scene where they go to like a party or something and it's like everything about the Soviet Union, it's like no part of like everyday life, like going to a party where people are dancing and they're listening to music. It can't just exist because there's not a culture here. It all has to be this emotional, you know, psychological projection of how Americans like see this time. It can't just be a party. It's like the people are crying out for freedom. So I swear to God, there's a scene in this movie where they're listening to the final countdown, which just want to say like they had music they had pop music in the ussr <laughs> like it's the 1980s what the fuck are, are the people behind this movie thinking but then the final countdown comes on and like the main character goes you have that here and then his russian counterpart says like a good idea knows no borders and then the music stops and this woman who's been like bopping around to the you know music 
gets up and then you know it's kind of like why 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 are they stopping what's going on and then the russian character goes she brings news from the baltic states (laughs) (laughs) they got it by morse code yeah right and then she gets up and she's like the people of estonia are rising up in riga they are crying out for freedom (laughs) like everything about this movie is that ridiculous it is unbelievable Yeah, you know, when I was in Berlin, I went to the DDR Museum, you know, see a little bit of life behind the Iron Curtain. And I went in thinking, okay, we're going to learn about the bread lines. We're going to learn about people being gunned down in the street for listening to the Beatles, you know, good stuff. And then you get in there and like the text at the opening is like, see a world without freedom. And you're like, okay, can't wait. Let's see a world without freedom. Then you get in and you find out, oh yeah, they they just had TV. You know, they had, here are their cereal boxes. It looks the same. Uh, And you're like, okay, what about the bread lines? And they're like, like, oh, there were lots of jobs. There was tons of like government building <laughs> yeah, projects yeah, 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 yeah. and unemployment was actually pretty low. <laughs> yeah, and, you yeah. know, here's what a Soviet apartment looked like. Well, looks like pretty good, pretty yeah, good actually. Yeah, yeah. But I did learn from this movie a lot about the Soviet Union. There's actually a lot that was happening that's very different from what's happening in the United States now. For example, did you know that in the USSR, <laughs> government officials would sometimes take bribes for, for political influence? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, did you know that there was a sort of unofficial blacklist in place you know (laughs) if people went against the orthodoxies of the state they could lose their jobs and may never be employed again like like that would never happen in the united states did you know they have massive military parades just like (laughs) in the center of the city with the leadership doing speeches afterwards i mean that's stuff that belongs i don't know at the super bowl yeah 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 And uh, just all the shots of, you know, gray slabs of... Nobody has any joy. You know why Tetris, you know why they made the stakes of this movie fucking Tetris? is because it sets up a thing where every single exchange between the, like, Western characters and the Russians... The Russians can say some version of, oh, happiness and entertainment are, they are inefficient. They are, we don't have this here. Gaming is counter-revolutionary. That's what the politics of this movie are. There is no nuance beyond that. And like further to Will's point, the actual backstory to this is that the programmer who came up with Tetris, he was a government employee. So the government had the IP to it. And, you know, eventually a deal was struck. The world got Tetris. Like they sold it. It happened. And by the way, that would never happen here where somebody, somebody's employer takes the IP rights to the thing that they created. Oh, it would be horrible if monopolism, you know, debased culture. And it doesn't even it doesn't even make sense in the time period the movie set. Because when this movie was made, Nintendo had like a 90 or 95% market share of the entire gaming market. I mean, we were talking about superheroes earlier in this episode. It'd be awful if the people who created Superman died poor because the corporation <laughs> yeah, that yeah. took the rights claimed they didn't really invent it. Do people have any idea how fucking litigious Nintendo is? <laughs> anyway, I do agree that the vision of Moscow in this movie, it looks like a very cold and unpleasant place. I mean, I was just driving through Michigan last week, and I love how they've decorated their highways with these wonderful billboards of, you know, injury attorneys that you can call, you know, so that you don't have to go bankrupt if you get in a car accident. You know, all the all the choose life billboards you keep seeing. Every, every advertisement you see when you watch TV is like for a payday loan store or something, or like something about how you can make two thousand dollars a month by monetizing your teeth or something yeah i mean that that's what (laughs) that true aesthetic beauty looks like you can sell your organs and qualify for (laughs) medicaid (laughs) this is the inventor of tetris your game is brilliant i'm gonna make you a millionaire mr rogers have you ever negotiated with the soviets we're here for tetris 
Вы все здесь только ради денег. What do you say? I don't speak Russian. Now, watching this movie uh, did bring my thoughts a little bit to the world of gaming. And there is an interview with a game designer uh, named Paolo Perticini that was published in Jacobin in 2017. It's called Socialism at Play. And there was some interesting stuff in this interview about gaming culture in the Soviet Union. And also, uh, Perticini had some thoughts on gaming under socialism. He says, in English, at least, there's very little research on gaming in the Soviet Union. We know from surviving arcade cabinets that what titles did exist were somewhat derivative of Western products. I'm guessing that's because they were produced in the aftermath of the infamous 1959 kitchen debate, in which Americans showcase models of middle-class homes in Russia to claim the superiority of the capitalist lifestyle. This prompted Khrushchev to direct more resources to consumer goods and modern amenities. So these early Soviet games were probably more of a symbolic catch-up with the West than an organic, heartfelt endeavor. Now, I'd recommend the whole interview. There's a lot of interesting uh, stuff in it. He goes on to talk about Tetris, uh, which began, quote, as a technical test at a research institution, was ultimately developed as a side project and ultimately spread virally, and not at all unlike Space War, the first video game in the West, did 20 years earlier. To me, the fact that it took a British company to turn a self-evidently brilliant game like Tetris into a global phenomenon is indicative of the repressive climate surrounding digital entertainment in the Soviet Union. And I think that's true. I don't think there's any uh, there's any denying that. It just doesn't have the sort of drama it does in this movie, where literally the KGB is like, oh my god, is going to crack down on like Tetris, and like there's literally we see Gorbachev as a character in this movie, and Robert Maxwell is like, I'm here to save communism because there's a there's a counter revolutionary game or something. Yeah, the Soviet Central Committee is really concerned about fucking Tetris. Yeah, every time the Taron Edgerton character is coming out of a meeting, there's always that one KGB guy who's stepping out of a limo being like, I understand you have been spreading freedom. Oh yeah, there's this one There's this one KGB guy in this movie who is so cartoonish. Like, we thought maybe it was going to turn out that he was literally Putin, but he's basically as a guy taken from like a 90s Brosnan Bond movie who like in the cold open at the beginning would smuggle depleted uranium in his ass or or something setting up the movie anyway just one more thing that's interesting in this interview is Petercini goes on to point out and this was certainly on my mind while watching this movie that capitalism actually you know as it does with entertainment in general uh, particularly in this very monopolistic phase that we're in now you know, it does a lot to uh, make gaming, like films and other things, significantly worse. And he says, I argue that under socialism, a lot of perverse shit we have to put up with as consumers of technology would simply disappear. I'm talking about proprietary systems, stupid dongles, non-standardized hardware and software, platform-exclusive content, obnoxious DRM systems, planned obsolescence, basically all the tricks that tech companies use to fuck us over or to screw with each other. They're all tricks that have nothing to do with the innovation or the actual product. That's exactly right. And Anyone who's you know remotely interested in gaming today, I mean, I wish our friend Alex Ross was here. He could, I'm sure, he could tell us a lot about this. Everybody knows that the like the worst features of gaming today have to do with all this like pay for play stuff that they're throwing in to games now. Growing up, you you buy a disc and then you own the game. Now, even when you buy the disc, a lot of games don't even work unless you're paying for fucking Xbox Live or whatever the equivalent is, or you can't access a whole bunch of the content. Sometimes even when you get the game, like which you don't really own anyway, it feels like you're just licensing it in order for it to keep working. Like this happened to me with Call of Duty Modern Warfare, and I don't even try to play it anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, you got to download, you know, our fucking 50 gigabyte update every single week. And that's going to get rid of all the maps that you like and replace them with new maps because nothing good can just be allowed to exist. You don't own this anymore. It's just a fucking license. Um, if you like your map, you can keep it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> 
And then furthermore, you have all this bullshit pay-to-play stuff. Like, uh, after I finished Red Dead Redemption 2, I don't know, in the last year, played it for the second time, just one of the most incredible games ever made. I was like, okay, I'll try Red Dead Online. Well, small problem. A lot of thought was put into Red Dead Online, and it should be really good. It's like they imagined a whole second game that takes place on the same map. Small problem. There's an in-game currency that you need in order to, like, do anything. Otherwise, it's just the most boring, repetitive task imaginable. You can do, like... 20 hours of those repetitive tasks to get enough of it to sort of have an entry level, you know, stats needed to play it or do any of the interesting missions. Or you can just give them $50 for this in-game currency. And remember, you're giving this to Rockstar after you've already paid 80 bucks for a AAA rated game. It's fucking ridiculous. So, you know, what's going on with gaming today? I mean, obviously, there have been a lot of genuine innovations that have made it better. But there's also a lot of stuff that's happening that is just like The Flash. Don't even get me started about this new fucking Lord of the Rings game that came out, which, I mean, that, that was made by an indie studio, but it had all the, you know, it's a reference point that for it, well, that you would like is it's basically like Mordecai, like literally <laughs> AstroTurf, tens of millions of dollars of hype for this thing that came out. And people are literally doing YouTube streams where they're like, this game is unplayable. One last thing on the subject of the movie, you know, when I was in uh, grade 12 business class at my high school, they showed us this kind of hacky documentary called To Russia With Fries. Oh, it was about the first McDonald's in Moscow or something? That's right. And if you notice that in a lot of these Western depiction of, you know, the fall of communism, or at the very least, the sort of infiltration of a totalitarian repressive society, the tropes that are always used are like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, in the case of this movie, Tetris, and that song the final countdown like th- like there's a scene in this movie where Taron Edgerton is talking to his Russian computer programmer friend who says well, I don't know I like uh, classical music and the uh, Russian folk songs uh, which <laughs> yeah, uh, of, yeah. of course like and he's like well wait till you listen to uh, the final countdown we, we only have music on Balilaika <laughs> I don't know what it means that it's so important to the American unconscious that not only not only is communism brought down but it's brought down by low American culture. Consumer goods. Yeah. 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 Like literally like not even the most innovative features of capitalism, like the slop, the detritus, corporate brands, that kind of shit. I have two thoughts here to close out. One is a comment that I've never forgotten by Slavoj Žižek, which I just think is worth throwing into this discussion where, you know, something he said about the Western impressions of, you know, life in the Eastern Bloc, where of course he grew up, is it's all like, yeah, 1984 or Arthur Kostler's Darkness at Noon. And that's completely ridiculous because for the most part, you know, the experience people had in those countries, you know, some some places worked better than others, you know, I and mean, that's another thing. They weren't monolithic. Things in Yugoslavia were very different than, you know, Poland or, or Romania. But Zizek's main point was the stereotype has to do with the idea that everything is like so coldly kind of rationalized and said, no, that's not true at all. Like Western countries are in word like much better organized, like the theme of life in Slovenia, where he grew up, was much more, you know, sort of inefficiency. Like, it was a lot more banal. It was just sort of, you know, there were there were certain features of the society that didn't work as well. And I think that's a really important point. Another comment that stuck with me uh, from somebody who was actually born in Yugoslavia, uh, our friend Branko Markatic, something he said to me once that's always stuck with me about, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and kind of how people, particularly in what's now the former Yugoslavia, 
thought about, you know, if, when they were optimistic about, you know, and when there was all that kind of early not, 90s optimism, you know, you see it, you know, we'll have to talk about them sometime, like the, the Kia Schlowski Three Colors trilogy. But, you know, there was this very real kind of optimism in the uh, early 1990s, not just in the West and, you know, parts of the, the former Eastern Bloc as well about Bronco, I think, summed it up very well. He said, the impression a lot of people had is, okay, all the stuff you like about, you know, living in the Eastern Bloc, like your public auto insurance, if you're in Yugoslavia, you know, the public health care, public housing, like, you're going to keep all that and you're going to get a multi-party system and, you know, maybe more civil liberties, that kind of thing. And uh, what actually happened is like, okay, no, we're selling off all that other stuff you like. And now you can have a multi-party system where you get a choice, unlike, you know, what you had before. And the choice is between, you know, bourgeois liberal parties that are driving all the privatization and extremely revanchist, socially conservative ones. <laughs> you know, when all is said and done, you know, the, the dialectic of history was finally realized, you know, the true dialectic of history where, you know, a uh, liberal capitalism prevails overall. It's like, dang, I got rid of the Berlin Wall and all, all I got to show for it is this lousy can of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> 